Will you please give your warmest welcome to the newest king of comedy, Rupert Pupkin. <laughs> excited to open the show with another charming Craig question. They're great. I have to defer to a guest submission today. So Bennett, you wrote about the Irishman for Split Tooth a while back. And Jason Michalich, who's the co-host of the soon to reemerge Synesthesia podcast, has submitted this question for you to ponder. And I quote, are you now or have you ever been digitally de-aged or do you just look that strange naturally? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Uh, no, I guess I do just look this strange naturally, although, boy, yeah, it'd be a tough way to, I, I, I don't think I look quite that strange. I don't think I have quite the, the same rubbery expressions as, uh, as DH, uh, De Niro Pacino, but thank you, Jason. I knew it was going to be some sort of dig at, at me or my taste in film, but at least it was just my looks. At least my, uh, at least Jason still believes my taste is unimpeachable. <laughs> Rob, how about you? It depends if we're on a, like in a simulation or not. Maybe I am, you know, digitally de-aged, and we're all just in a in a blanket, you know, of software. But you know, I do just look this strange. I think so. Yeah, me too. Unfortunately, fortunately, or unfortunately. <laughs> all right. So Bennett Glace, Robert Delaney. I'm also a giver. Here's my question: What <laughs> is the worst pronunciation of your name you've ever received? Man. I can't remember a time. Robert Delaney is such a uh, normcore name. I don't know. I think I feel like there's one way to pronounce it, and everyone usually nails it, sort of thing, just because there's no ambiguity. So I think I've I've sort of sailed past that that awkwardness. Luckily, I've uh, I've spelled your name wrong almost every time I've had to type it out. I oh, was, yeah. I always add an e in your yeah. last name. I did too, and I made his email, and he was like, "Hey, there's no e." I was like, "Oh, we're off to a great start." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, one of the myriad uh, ways in which I relate to uh, the protagonist of uh, Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy is, is that my name is often mispronounced and misspelled. Uh, I've gotten glass. I've gotten glacy. I think the worst is probably glace, <laughs> which uh, I have gotten before. <laughs> one time I got K-R-A-Y-U-G-H for Craig Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, that was oh that God. was special. <laughs> and the comedy find of the year making his television debut, Rupert Pupkin, the new Rupert. king of comedy. Rupert! Are you crazy? Hey, What's hello, the matter Rupert. with you? Yeah, ah, people are sleeping. Lower it. What's the matter with you? Mom! Take it easy. Lower it. I'm not going to lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. So today, welcome back to Split Picks. I'm obviously being joined by Rob and Bennett today. I'm Craig Wright, and we're taking on a legendary filmmaker today. It's a man who's been doing this for decades. He's covered a litany of topics from boxers to mobsters to taxi drivers and Wall Streeters. It's Martin Scorsese today. And Bennett, I know you're pretty big fan of Scorsese's. Rob, you are lesser so. 
Um, so I think it'd be interesting to talk about why each of you chose these movies. And Bennett, we'll start with you because we'll just go chronologically. You chose King of Comedy. Why don't you tell us why you chose that one? So as, as the subjects of the films that I've chosen to write on should probably make clear, I, I'm a big fan of movies about uh, losers. about um, and, well, and I'm particularly interested in movies about losers who desperately, desperately, desperately believe that they could just maybe be a winner. Um, and, you know, people who, who, who devise foolhardy schemes to get there. And I think, I don't know, I, I, Rupert Pupkin in the annals of cinematic loserdom is really uh, one of the greats. And I think it's, um, I don't know, I, despite the fact that the um, Scorsese-De Niro partnership is, you know, obviously discussed to death, they're probably the most famous director and actor pair ever, um, you know, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull. I feel like The King of Comedy, though it's maybe started to get uh, a little more praise in recent years, uh, can be sort of forgotten uh, amongst all those classics. And Rob, you chose, I believe is his second most recent film, which is 2016 Silence. What made you pick that one? So to me, I think Silence is on the on the side of Scorsese's, I guess, like stylistic complexity, or maybe not stylistic is not the right word, but sort of ideologically that, that I think is interesting, because I'm not a huge fan of his filmography, although I was a gigantic fan uh, in high school as a young lad, and I'm sure we're going to get into that um, later on, but um, I'm also sort of interested in how directors deal with such like a, a sensitive topic like religion and film, and sort of how their um, their ideas about their own faith sort of come through into the presentation, which I think definitely comes through in Silence. Uh, so I think it's it's one of the most interesting films that I still um, think has some worth of his filmography, even though I have this sort of bias against. <laughs> his work sometimes so before we dive into the films i just kind of want to get a sense of your overall feelings about scorsese so rob you just mentioned that he might not be your favorite filmmaker but can you give me a brief rundown on your relationship to his work yeah so when i was in when i was in high school my my holy trinity as it as it were my triumvirate of directors was a uh, tarantino scorsese and kevin smith uh and uh, i thought i thought those directors were just the bee's knees that they were the best you know things that I, they made the best movies that I've ever seen in my life. And um, it wasn't until sort of I hit college and studying film and in undergrad and graduate school that like, uh, I feel like my, my perspective on film was very narrow before and very limited. Like I'd never really seen inter- international cinema. I'd never seen any avant-garde or experimental films at all. Um, and sort of, I had this very um, sort of like AMC networks, Uh, perspective on film like what fx plays on the weekends and so i sort of look on that stage of my appreciation of film as sort of like the the nascent stages or something like that where um i saw all of the like goodfellas and casino and all of that and i sort of drank it up because i thought like a slick narrative and winding plots and things like that and and um the the rawness quote unquote of them were very attractive to me but uh I just like I just value very different things in film now than I think I did back then. So Bennett, before we started recording, you just told us that you've seen The Irishman seven times. That is almost twenty four hours of one film. I am interested. What draws you to Scorsese and that film in particular? Like that's a long movie. He has a lot of long works. Like what makes you go for this guy? So yeah, I, like Rob, I first discovered Scorsese. I think like most. Uh, 
you know, people with uh, any level of interest in American movies do. When I was like a teen, uh, when I was getting into like the IMDb Top 250, when I was beginning to fancy myself uh, something of a, a cinephile, and I see that as my youth, right? That That's when I was devouring, you know, Scorsese, Tarantino, uh, Woody Allen, people who are good kind of entry-level auteurs, both because they're they're acclaimed, uh, they win awards, and because it's very obvious how they, what they're doing is very obvious. Their stamp is, is immediately obvious to someone who doesn't necessarily have a huge cinematic vocabulary. And they're also, you know, people who are often on camera talking about the films that influence them. Then I think I have... Uh, so I have my youth, then I think I have my adult years is when I, I go to college and I, I see a broader range of films and I start to, I start to question, is this, is this Scorsese guy really all he's cracked up to be? You know, who, who really cares about winning Oscars? Ugh, Leonardo DiCaprio, he's, he's making another movie with him again. But then I think honestly around the time Hugo came out, this is one of the first times I remember myself being really like pleasantly surprised by any film i remember going in very skeptical going oh scorsese was making a children's movie Ugh, aza butterfield Ugh, chloe chloe grace moretz you know not to not to not to badmouth child actors but even among child actors these are bad child actors <laughs> but i i don't know he, he blew me away uh hugo is this this beautiful like love letter to, to george millier and everything scorsese loves about cinema and then i realized you've got youth which is appreciating scorsese You've got adulthood, which is growing past Scorsese, and then you've got maturity, which is realizing, ah, you were right all along. Um, I don't know. I, I think I, I've really come to appreciate Scorsese's, uh, yeah, I mean, all of his films, the slower, more meditative ones like The Irishman in Silence, the flashier ones, you know, Your Goodfellas, Your Casinos, the movies that kind of got me in there in the first place. But then he's also just such a great ambassador for cinema. I don't know. His World Cinema Project is, you know, always helping bring kind of interesting films to, uh, you know, back into the conversation. Uh, he does a lot of preservation work. He's he's a big champion of interesting stuff. I mean, I don't love his taste in new directors always, but I don't know, like he was a producer on Joanna Ogg's The, the Souvenir. Uh, that's incredible. And um, I don't know, I guess I appreciate him for all that. Yeah, I, I, I want to say too, I think that's something I found out recently with his work with the Film Foundation, which I think is superb um, and him sort of using his power in the industry to help preserve and restore um, like a lot of like overlooked films, especially um, and films that I've seen sort of like on criteria, like the eloquent peasant and like the color of pomegranates and things like that. So I, you know, it's really great that he's using his position to help artists who don't have the sort of overwhelming mainstream acceptance that, that his filmography does, especially, you know, I just like him too. Like it's, it's, it's easy to roll your eyes when, um, when a filmmaker or like any film figure becomes sort of like an adorkable meme, you know, when you get like the Agnes Varda treatment, but Marty's like cute. I don't know. And it's like fun to watch him like, <laughs> like wax poetic in interviews. Uh, and that picture of him with a dog. I don't, I don't know. I just, I like the guy when he pops up in cameos and movies. I always smile. Don't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's in both of these, which I, did you spot him in silence? I didn't. Okay. No, I, don't we'll, think so. I didn't either. We'll get yeah. to that. Um, yeah. So going off that though, what do you consider a Scorsese's prime? And I'm asking from you know your personal perspective and from a critical objective stance. When do you see he was at his peak, and when was he doing things that were the most groundbreaking? Well, I think most people would say that his his creative peak is, um, and also kind of his his critical peak was when he was working with De Niro in the '70s. I mean, Scorsese is probably the director most associated with you know the new Hollywood. Um, which is, I think, part of why he's kind of an entry-level auteur for a lot of people. 
Uh, and, th- and that's, you know, when he was making Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, uh, The King of Comedy. Uh, New York, New York was kind of his one major flop in that period. But for, for a while, he and De Niro could kind of do no wrong. Um, I, and then I, I personally think, and I've, I've said this on Split Tooth when I was sharing my favorite films of the last decade, I think from 2010 to 2020, he had the most fruitful and interesting period of his career. Um, you have Shutter Island in that period, which I just rewatched the other night, and it turns out is actually very good. Um, you have Hugo, you have The Wolf of Wall Street, you have Silence, um, you have uh, The Irishman, and you have that great Bob Dylan documentary from a few years ago. I don't know, I uh, quite a decade for a guy who was, you know, in his late 60s and mid-70s. So, Scorsese, I mean, if you ask 10 people what is your favorite movie, you're, I'm just going to guess you'll probably get at least six different titles thrown out. Most of them, I imagine, though, will probably land in the mob realm. He has made his name working with the mob. So before we get into King Comedy, I want to distance ourselves from the mob talk. So how does the King Comedy both differ from and embody Scorsese's reputation as a king of mob films? Well, I I think comedy has always been... uh, There's a lot of comedy in his mob films, uh, both in the sense that the characters are often dealing in a lot of like ball-busting, but also... A lot of the times, their their meetups, their like get-togethers are occurring in like comedy clubs, nightclubs. There's uh, famous scenes at the Copa, obviously in Goodfellas and in Raging Bull. Um, so I think it's that th- that world of entertainment is a somewhat adjacent milieu, and uh, it seems like maybe he was like scratching an itch that he he had been that he's maybe fully committing to something that had been there in the earlier mob films. Like this film follows Raging Bull, which literally ends with uh, Jake LaMotta becoming a uh, night show performer, a nightclub performer. It's almost like he's staying in that world from the previous film, if that makes sense. Right after this, Scorsese made After Hours, which is probably his most overt comedic film. So it does kind of sit in this middle point of like, you know, Raging Bull and straight up comedy. So how do you think that factors into it? Well, yeah, I wonder, too, if he was like kind of taking a break. I mean, this is right around the period where he was trying and failing to get The Last Temptation of Christ made, uh, kind of a passion project that in addition to running into funding issues, he was running into all sorts of, uh, you know, all sorts of controversy from, uh, you know, the true believers about uh, the source material. He had just, uh, I think he had just gotten like sober off of cocaine after the flop of like New York, New York back in 77. Uh, And then I have to imagine Raging Bull was sort of an exorcism for, for him and De Niro in a way. Um, so as, uh, as, as like murky as the king of comedy can get as dark as it can get, it still seems like they're maybe having some fun after, you know, what must've been uh, a pretty intense experience making films like New York, New York and Raging Bull. And going back to Bennett's point about sort of comedy in the mobster movies, I think there's a lot of, uh, comedic timing, especially how he uses like Joe Pesci in his films. Like sometimes it can feel like, um, sort of like one man show moments when Joe Pesci is is on screen in his mobster movies. So when I when I first saw this movie years ago, it definitely made sense to me. It wasn't like, oh, this guy's who makes mobster movies is making a comedy movie. It felt like this was a sort of natural progression, like Bennett was saying. Um so I think I think it makes it one of the most interesting points in his career to me and one of the most interesting films of his whole filmography. I'm maybe his best we'll we'll see at the end of this episode if we still think so. So in The King of Comedy, Robert De Niro plays Rupert Pupkin. He's a wannabe stand-up comedian who takes a chance encounter with his hero to the ultimate extreme. Bennett, do you want to give us a quick rundown? Who is this guy and what is his mission in this movie? 
Yeah, so uh, Rupert Pupkin, uh, often misspelled, often mispronounced, is a 34-year-old, uh, like, I guess he's some sort of delivery guy, he's some sort of courier. Uh, he lives in New, uh, New Jersey uh, with his mother, and he is uh, obsessed with the idea of fame. And he is particularly obsessed with Jerry Langford, who is uh, the host of a Tonight Show-style show. Uh, played by the great Jerry Lewis. And uh, Pupkin is uh, an autograph hound, hangs out with a lot of other autograph hounds. And uh, one day, uh, after kind of protecting Jerry in a tussle with uh, another friend of his named Masha, who is also obsessed with Jerry, he ends up in the back of his limousine, and Jerry gives him sort of a kind of boilerplate showbiz pep, kind of a boilerplate showbiz pep talk, and he takes that at face value and decides, well, I'm going to be on the Jerry Langford show. Right, and he definitely lingers around, and you can tell that there's some attachment issues immediately with him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's a wonderful transition from from De Niro being a part of the crowd to going into the car and sort of shielding him from the other rabid fans. I really liked that transition where, you know, it's a great way to sort of pick out De Niro from the crowd, other than his, you know, super vibrant suit that he's wearing and his super sort of vibrant color scheme that he always has in his costuming like that moment to me was really interesting where one person gets picked out of these sort of swarming (laughs) rabid fans sort of thing i uh it struck me watching it that like the couple seconds we get of him walking up to that group is maybe the only maybe like the only time in the entire movie where he's not doing the bit where he's not rupert pupkin uh, yeah. where we're seeing him kind of put the mask on. And he even plays a slightly different character among these people. Well, actually, that's not true. Like, he's he sees himself as, like, above it. He's still kind of mm-hmm. playing, like, Rupert Pupkin, future celebrity. You know, he's talking yeah. like, oh, this isn't my whole life. This isn't my whole life. I've got other, I've got other stuff to worry about. I love that. Like, him trying to big-time his fellow, uh, like, hangers-on and vultures. So I, th- I think it's safe to say he's driven by an unwavering sense of self. But one of my favorite parts about this movie is that we see these fantasies where people are telling him how great he is. And my favorite one was when his principal is a guest on The Jerry Show with him and he apologizes for all the wrongdoings of the past that anyone had ever done to him. They're just like, you're so great. You're the funniest. What do you make of these daydreams and what do they add to the film and what do they tell us about Rupert? Well, I think one of the things that's really interesting um, about Rupert and this sort of like obsessive fantasy world of his is uh, the ways in which it's different from uh, kind of a superficially similar character he would play for Scorsese. Travis Bickle also has this kind of fantasy life that he creates in like the letters he writes back to his mother. But uh, it's very clear that Travis Bickle is motivated by like racism and by like intense sexual desire. Whereas for uh, Robert De Niro, it, it the literally the one and only thing motivating him is the concept of other people knowing who Rupert Pupkin is. He's obsessed with uh, a woman, Rita, who we, we find out he went to high school with, but there's never any sense that there's anything sexual there. It is literally just, I want to get married to her. I, I need to have a wife because the king of comedy is supposed to have a queen. It is all just about like looking the part and being accepted as the guy. I don't know. Like One gets the sense that like his idea of fame is that like Jerry Langford goes on TV every night. You know, He has no sense of like, any, he has no sense of like, writers writing jokes he has no sense of any of like the work that goes into tv it's just like one one could imagine him thinking the people he sees on tv like you could imagine him thinking jerry langford lives on the jerry langford set if you know what i mean right 
my favorite fantasy from this film too is when um jerry langford um is trying to get de niro to to host the show and it's going between uh, a, a fantasy dinner of them talking together in this like fancy restaurant and him just screaming in his basement in his like a uh, cave of of celebrity i thought that those transitions editing wise were so smooth and seamless and like the pacing of them was incredible. I had this like momentum of going um, between this like very uh, sort of intimate conversation between Jerry Lewis and De Niro and this like kind of manic, uh, almost like panic stricken atmosphere of him just like yelling and and, you know, gesturing by himself in this dark room. The laughing to himself really is. Oh uh, yeah. It's very striking. And Ben, you mentioned that he really does have no sense of the work because in his, daydream when he's in jerry's office you know he's like all of your one-liners were perfect you know there's just nothing you need to do like how do you do this tell me how how are you you essentially and he thinks that just Mm. being is enough and not actually like when the talent scout says we know your name do some club work and we'll get back to you we'll come check you out like that's a very fair offer but he just takes that as a rejection and uh Mm. gets kicked out of the office multiple times for it (laughs) Those scenes in the office are are so incredible. I mean, I think we talked a little bit before before we got on mic about this. Um, I, I read that someone posited this as kind of a transition film uh, between New Hollywood and kind of indie cinema, as it would come to be known in like the 80s and 90s. And I think another thing that's really prescient about the comedy style of this film is just the, the, the cringiness and the kind of like slow pace, the way he'll really let these films sit. Uh, Pauline Kael described it as like a drugged lang- like languidness or something, which I-, I don't quite think is there. But maybe that just speaks to the fact that no one had seen like cringe comedy of any sort in, in 1983. I don't know. But uh, just the scenes of him uh, talking to the receptionist are incredible. She mispronounces his name a different way every single time, <laughs> including immediately after he said it and said often misspelled, often mispronounced. Like just the fact that he introduces himself that way is so funny because it it's it suggests a lifetime of people calling him like rupert pumpkin rupert pipkin like we know that he hears this every day oh it's so good um and and just incredible like she's one of the many like one scene people like bit players that are just so perfectly cast in this movie like it really feels like it's despite the fact that rupert pumpkin is such a caricature and such a cartoon character he very much it very much feels like he lives in real new york and that everyone he's interacting with is like some real new yorker who's like you know what is this guy on about Particularly like when he's at the the payphone is really great. Like it feels like those could all just be like extras who are actually expecting to be able to use a payphone. I think the set design of the office is also really incredible. Like I mean, the the color palette is really interesting in this film. But there always seems to be these contrasts of um, these like super vibrant reds and blues and and yellows and like darkness. Like I feel like there's a lot of shadows in the corners of all of these places that um, made me feel like a little claustrophobic sometimes when I'm watching this film in a good way. Like I thought that was a really interesting touch. Like there's some sort of um, like tension running through these spaces along with like this screwball cringe comedy. And I mean, one of the one of the most interesting parts of I guess it's a fantasy in the office. And I want I wanted to get your both of your takes on this because I thought it was so incredible when um, Jerry Lewis like touches uh, De Niro's face and he's like holding his head in his hands and and shaking it back and forth when he's asking him like how he makes these incredible jokes I thought that was such an interesting touch to these scenes because it seems like the fantasies of Rupert Pumpkin is are also like physical 
in that. Like, there's no reason why he had to, like, put his hands all over his face and, like, literally squish his, like, skin and stuff like that. Like, what did you both make of that sequence? It was, it seemed very much like, uh, well, I guess, like, it struck me as a very Jerry Lewis gesture. I don't know. Like, it seemed like something Jerry Lewis would do in a Jerry Lewis movie. Um, so it may have, it might have just been, like, an improv on Jerry's part. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I saw that as Rupert... Uh, it's the sort of way Rupert would probably behave with Jerry if he was in the room with him, I guess is how I read it. So mm. like, it's, it's him putting his own like behavior and like feelings about like fame and talent onto somebody else. Like if I was that good, Jerry would respond to me the way I respond to Jerry by like, I don't know, trying to be him by really trying to like almost consume him in that way. Yeah. I mean, it's, I've, you know, I've, been fortunate enough to like interview some fairly famous people and you know like seeing musicians afterwards like i've waited just to say you know thank you for doing the interview there's always like the one person though when you're around famous people who's just like audibly and just like visibly shaking and you just know like you're not here just to say thank you like this is really kind of creepy and they do just always want to touch the people it's like get your hands off stop it (laughs) so i think he's just envisioning like oh yeah you know people like me they're gonna touch me they're gonna want to be like they're gonna feel what i feel when i see jerry and so it just becomes a tactile thing but you know going off of that bennett you sent over some deleted scenes um that are on youtube and in one of them it's rupert daydreaming that he's on the show and Liza Minnelli is the co-star and the thing that I loved about this deleted scene is that none of the questions are actually related to him like Jerry keeps talking to Liza Minnelli and then anytime he mentions or she mentions a city he jumps in with a joke like oh I'm still here so like even in this deleted daydream like he's still being ignored (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's yeah no it's amazing and he also he just can't stop performing i think that also it's, it, it speaks to like he doesn't even understand how being famous is supposed to work he doesn't even understand how like giving one of those interviews at, at being like on the show is supposed to work i think that kind of returns to the jerry like squeezing his face thing like he imagines that famous people behave around other famous people the way people like him would behave around famous people like he probably imagines that they're like there are plenty of celebrity couples that got to be that way because Amasha kidnapped a Jerry, right, you know, like yeah. he, I think he thinks that this is like normal interactions to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, that almost reminds me of like the, the wild card on talk shows like Don Rickles or something like that, where they'll like insert themselves into the conversation and the audience sort of loves that bit of chaos, but it's also to be like, uh, like I can still be the center of the show. Even if there's another guest there, I just like sort of radiate this comedy aura that scene is so funny. And the, the the wedding scene is so, so funny, too. The way his principal, like, deadpans the whole apology is incredible. Um, and that's not to keep harping on Pauline Kael's review, but she, like, describes Rupert Pupkin. She, she says that, like, Jake LaMotta is a walking chip on his shoulder. And with Rupert, there's no chip. This is a man who has a fantasy about his high school principal apologizing to him on behalf of anybody who ever wronged him on, on national television. This is not a man with a chip on his shoulder. This is not a man who you would describe as a walking chip. I don't know. I... Yeah, that seems like a misreading. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing, like we touched on how they use humor a bit earlier, but this movie does a great job of never showing Rupert actually doing comedy 
And it's just like this afterthought where this guy who's presenting himself as, you know, the future king of comedy, but you don't hear him make a joke and like everything is just like super serious until he's actually on stage. Bennett, you're signaling. What's up? The pride and joy joke. I think you're forgetting. Oh, he, oh, he sneaks one. <laughs> Jerry, let me show it? you my pride and joy. That's but yes, right. you're right. <laughs> yes. But it's still just like this very basic joke and it's like, okay, so, you know, you're not going to be the king of comedy with that. Um, but it just speaks to the role and how De Niro played it where I, I think you all kind of know that like this guy's not actually going to be that funny, but I'll stop there. What do you guys think of De Niro and like just how he approaches the humor in it? Um, well, I think one of the most brilliant decisions made in the film is the fact that we don't see uh, any of De Niro's comedy until the end. We get kind of... We can sort of hear him start his routine as he's recording it in that great scene where it like pulls back down this like insane hallway. I, I don't know what sort of like apartment in New Jersey has a basement that enormous that he's living with his mom. But uh, we, we see him in front of that crowd. But yeah, no, I think it's so great that we spend the whole movie just wondering in our heads like, God, what could what could his set possibly be like? Because he doesn't seem to have like normal interactions. He doesn't seem to make normal observations. Like what could possibly be the material of his uh, set? Right. He He's says so in that one fantasy to Jerry. Yeah, like he, he says in the one fantasy to Jerry um, that he does take like the horrible things in his life. So we get a little slight indication of maybe some of the dark territory he's going to go down. But I, uh, one thing that really strikes me in his monologue is uh, he mentions when he's riding in the uh, limo with Jerry early on that he really took Jerry's, he, he learned how to do comedy by watching Jerry and taking all of Jerry's advice. And key among that is you don't like hit the punchlines. You don't say, Hey folks, there's the punchline. You really just, you gotta let the joke sit and you watch Rupert stand up. And also you watch Jerry's monologue that they, I think thankfully deleted. Yeah. Neither of them is letting the punchline sit. They're all hammering the jokes constantly. Like Rupert does not pause for laughs at all. Mm -hmm. He's clearly like sprinting through his set. Yeah. It's funny because you don't see his act or him doing comedy the whole time, but he has all of those sort of pride and joy one liners in conversation. I think it's this idea that uh, like certain comedians talk about where uh, Robert De Niro's character, like Rupert Pupkin, feels like he has to be funny all of the time. Like that's that's who comedians are. They're just like like over, like jokes are flowing out of their ears all the time because in these sentences he'll say um like uh, uh, often misspelled and and mispronounced and then he smiles like he he seems to have this way of speaking where he thinks that like he has to put sort of a punchline at the end of his sentences sometimes. So sometimes when he's speaking, it almost feels like he's doing like a pseudo stand-up, which is really off-putting like the whole time. Well, especially yeah. especially throughout the date. There's even at one point, there's a guy sitting behind them who is also featured in a deleted scene, but they kept in him like imitating Rupert behind him and Rita clearly noticing it because every one of his gestures is really huge. He's constantly performing Rupert Pupkin conversation subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's never, yeah, I don't know. He's never like, I hate to, I hate to use the phrase in the moment, but he's never actually in the moment. There's always some sort of like script running through his head. He's always performing for some sort of imaginary audience, anticipating some sort of laugh. And something great about De Niro's performance is that he uses his body so well to sort of deliver these pseudo punchlines, especially his face, like that smile, that like shit eating grin he has after he says something that he wants to be funny is so impactful in that scene, like more so than like his tone of voice, even like his body posture is like really emotive. He's got quite a slouch. <laughs> when yeah. he like kisses, yeah. when he kisses Rita on the cheek, I just the way he 
like leans in for that is so this is so good yeah. and also his little walk makes me laugh every time the way he like yeah. struts out on stage is so funny yeah. i kind of think the set would kill though i, I honestly like <laughs> oh yeah I, 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 oh, for sure. I like i don't think he's funny but as he says there's the my favorite thing he says actually my my favorite line might be when he's going through the um the the autograph book on a date oh just imagine how insufferable <laughs> Some oh. grown man showing you his like autographs from celebrities on a date, um, and then slipping he, um, in his own. He says, and then uh, here's mine. Here, take that with you. Um, when he says uh, Mel Brooks, he's what you call on funny. Other people are just regular funny. It's so fucking yeah. funny. Like on funny is something he heard someone say in an interview one time that he is now internalized as if he knows what it means, as if someone said that about him or something. It's so good. Yeah. In the land, in the landscape of modern late night, that monologue would do. I think would do really well. Which was, which I think is like the tragedy of that moment too. Realizing I think that the like Pride and Joy added, joke would get a yeah. hundred thousand likes on Twitter. <laughs> oh sure, for sure, yeah, yeah. You know, in high school, there are always the kids who are like, "I'm going to be a comedian one day." It's like when people tell you they're going to be funny, like, yeah, I never believe it. But it's always the people who like you're telling them like you're going to be a comedian. Those are the funny people. <laughs> Rupert definitely falls in the first category. <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's no one less funny than a class clown. He is definitely. The, the unfunny class clown i was an unfunny class clown i should know i mean i <laughs> as, as i said i really uh I, I can't imagine relating ever relating to a character more than i relate to rupert in, in, in certain moments in this movie so this movie was made you know fairly soon after taxi driver right after raging bull it's always kind of like on the veneer of turning like classic scorsese violent like this guy you just feel like he could snap at any moment and like you know i might be a spoiler if you haven't seen the film but it's kind of the crux you know obviously he kidnaps jerry so what does it say about rupert and i guess scorsese too that this film stays nonviolent? well i mean I, I think he knows it's more interesting to linger in the, the ambiguity there than to give us clear answers and i also think it again speaks to the impossibility of rupert ever breaking the act ever breaking character i think to really snap and even like hit jerry let alone like shoot jerry would be such a massive like break of character and like i don't know like w rupert pupkin sees himself as like basically a comedy partner with jerry basically they're like abbott and costello in his mind and like I don't know. I, I, I'm not the one to make this observation, but I, I, I've heard it said that like some of those comedy duos, like you imagine Abbott without Costello and it's like he would just like disappear in Rupert's mind were Jerry Lewis to go away he, or were Jerry Langford to go away, he would cease to exist. Uh, so I, I think it's just an impossibility that it would ever really go to violence, though he threatens it like 10 times. I think the violence is also sort of tongue in cheek. The little that you do see in this film too, it's kind of, it's almost like satirical, like that punch from Jerry Lewis to um, the, to what is her name? Masha, I believe. Right. Yeah. Is such a strange, weird punch. It almost doesn't look real. Like he throws it from his waist. Um, and, in, and it's so clear that he like actually doesn't hit the actress too. It looks like, or something like, oh, it's really? like, I... I, I don't know. It just looks very cartoonish and like how he, how they uh, tie him to the chairs by like you know putting so much tape around yes. him where he looks like a mummy yes. like it almost feels like in those moments where it's like this is not a mobster movie where violence is going to make you cringe and it's going to be almost realistic in its uh like in its visceralness if that's a word See, I actually think that slap is kind of the one moment of like real violence we get in the movie and it kind of I feel like it like stops it cold it reminds you like what an unpleasant person Langford is 
Um, his run away is sort of this very comic, exaggerated Jerry Lewis run. But I actually, I don't know. I, I think of the slap as being the most serious uh, violence we get. It, it, it sort of crucially kind of snaps us back into reality, too. I love that the gun is fake, too. Spoilers, it's so funny that the gun turns out to be yeah, fake. It's so awesome that the gun's, the gun's fake. I think that's a great touch. If the if the gun was real, that sequence wouldn't be as interesting. Because you can even tell, like, there's that those floral patterns on the side of it and, like, that are clearly etched in plastic. Oh, um, which, and Yeah, yeah. And oh, when I, I was watching that. the film, I was like, how how does he not see that this gun is fake? This gun looks so incredibly fake. It just looks like it's made in some factory somewhere as a toy. Uh, on the subject too of the, the slap being one of the only moments where things really come to a head I think the only moment where we see people really lose their cool about Jerry Lewis Jerry, I keep calling him Jerry Lewis Jerry Langford <laughs> let's let's establish he's really playing a Jerry Lewis type yes in this movie um, <laughs> a, a, a sort of uh, an unpleasant guy deeply doesn't really like fame um, but the funniest man in the world um, now I uh, the, the only time we ever really see people lose their cool is the one scene where his lawyer is flipping out at everybody saying I'm gonna sue you I'm gonna sue you I'm gonna sue we're, we're suing everybody otherwise they all seem to be sort of uh, trying to stay everybody's otherwise very calm almost like performatively calm now obviously it's like a hostage situation and you're not trying to add like additional stress but like I don't know it it keeps it keeps up with the sense of like this being like a performance like Jerry like almost it almost seems like Jerry expected to find himself here when he's like reading off of the cue cards, he's so bemused. Ben, and I'm curious about when Rupert and Rita show up at Jerry's vacation home and the housekeepers are like, are you supposed to be here? But they won't kick him out. So they call Jerry who was golfing and he shows up in his own house with the golf club. Like you can tell it's like he doesn't want to use it, but he has it just in case. Do you <laughs> think he loses his cool in that moment or not? Um, Honestly, not as much as one might expect. Um, I I think he's pretty. He's he's shorter with his butler than with Rupert, from what I remember. He seems more just like disturbed than all that angry uh, with Rupert. I, I the one thing that puzzles me about that scene is why Rita agrees to come in the first place. Do do you think she's calling Rupert's bluff? Do you think she's that is are we also are we, are we to interpret that she's also as like hungry for proximity to fame as he is i don't know i because in the train she was like asking him if she looked nice and things like that and from the performance it seems like she's very invested in this trip which it makes it incredibly sad and when like you know when she finds out that they weren't invited her like eyes tearing up uh is it, definitely one of the saddest parts of the movie for me so i feel like she is very invested in this and um maybe calling his bluff a little bit but there's something about it where she's really enjoying herself for the first time being with rupert um which is hilarious that the the only time that she enjoys his company is when he's breaking into a celebrity's <laughs> like house or something like that or vacation home um there's also something about Jerry's eyes in that sequence that are sort of fiery, whereas like he doesn't lose his cool and get physical with people or scream and shout. But there's something about that stare that is like boring into Robert De Niro, which I find interesting. Yeah, Craig, I actually, yeah, he, he gets pretty angry in the scene, but I think the, the crucial difference between this and being kidnapped is like, this is an unusual sort of affront on his privacy. This is like someone like showing up in his home, touching his stuff. 
something that even a celebrity is not supposed to be accustomed to. Like when he gets the call from Masha and he's so pissed. Like that, this is like beyond the pale of what even a celebrity is supposed to deal with. Whereas getting kidnapped is really only the logical conclusion to people constantly wanting a piece of him. Um, like that woman shouting, you should only get cancer. He, that, oh, this happens a thousand times a day. Of course she would say that. Yeah. So going off that though, like I, I mentioned the golf club because like if this was Joe Pesci, that golf club is going to be smashing the glass doors and the, you know, it's going to get, if not violent, at least like threatening very quickly. But Rob, going off what you just said, like I take Rita going with him as the one moment where someone in the film actually believes in Rupert because he's presented himself as like, yes, you know, I (laughs) trust me, I know Jerry. And then he says like, well, why don't we go to his vacation home? He's expecting us. It's like, okay. And she actually gives him a shot and it you know doesn't end well but no one in this film and i would say rightfully so really gives him belief and but no one i also feel is unfair to him how how do you guys think about how other people react to him people are remarkably patient uh with him i would say there's the brief moment the, the one second when we see him at work when he makes the first phone call to jerry the receptionist there is briefly like oh wow the real jerry langford and not in a you're you're pulling my leg sort of a way in a wow maybe he's serious yeah uh sort of a way but uh, it's telling that that goes away almost immediately like as soon as he's been rebuffed the first time as softly as possible the, the anyone's illusions that he's not full of shit are, are basically gone. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting parts of the film to me where I think on one side you can look at like the fandom side of this film and be like, wow, this is a dark view of humanity. Like especially Masha, like getting into the limo and basically trying to like rip Jerry Langford apart because she loves this persona he plays on TV so much. But at the same time, it seems like kind of hopeful for human interaction. Like people are so nice to Rupert for most of the time. Even the security guard, the first time he has to escort him out, is like incredibly pleasant to him and really sort of cordial. And to me, that's like the dichotomy in this film, which I think is kind of brilliant from Scorsese, where he shows how nice people treat each other and also how like unfairly at the same time, you know. I was going to say, I, I've definitely been rejected from jobs in, in worse ways than Rupert being told, like, well, why oh, don't yeah. you try your act out in some comedy clubs? Because, like, yeah. I don't know about you, usually when I apply to something and I don't get it, I uh, I don't hear back or I get a, a form letter. He got a little bit oh, of yeah. uh, constructive criticism. He got constructive criticism. He got great advice. And he also had the door sort of open to him, like, hey, when you start working, call us and we'll send someone over. Like, that's a, that's a to me, that would be a win. If I was Rupert Pupkin, I'd be like that's an awesome scenario. Like I'm not on getting on the show, but this is an amazing opportunity. Like, especially her. She's so nice to Rupert the whole time. It definitely like warmed my heart for a bit sort of thing. I am um, another comparison between the film and taxi driver or another way in which uh, the film kind of differs from taxi driver. And this is again, me sort of recycling some insights, but uh, I think it applies to the scenes in the office and the scenes at Jerry's house in particular. There's the famous scene in Taxi Driver when when Travis Bickle is on the phone with Sybil Shepherd getting like turned down again and the camera sort of like turns away as if it's like embarrassed to look on the scene. This is a film that never gives us uh, a reprieve from embarrassment. Like we're we're sitting in in Langford's house that whole time we watch Rupert's set uninterrupted. Um it, it's very much a film that and 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 maybe this is why people didn't respond to it at the time. It's it's not a film that gives you any sort of break from any of the unpleasantness, even if it never really escalates to, to violence or anything. So I think we're all familiar that Scorsese made the news not too long ago 
when he said that superhero and Marvel films were not cinema and that they're closer to theme parks than cinema. We can unpack that if you'd like, but I think the more interesting portion is how many people consider Joker to be a remake or a spiritual descendant of King of Comedy. Bennett, I know you have thoughts about Joker. Do you want to (laughs) tackle either angle of the Scorsese superhero debate? Yeah, I would just say that, like, I, um, I, it's, it's bad enough that Scorsese is constantly getting slandered by, um, I don't know, people who kind of resent the film bro associations. Um, if I were him, if I could give some constructive criticism to Mr. Scorsese, I might just not, I might just not talk about it because you really can't win. Right. Um, all of the people with the wrong opinions are convinced. It's it's uh, what's the 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 Yates quote? You know the the worst uh, are the worst are confident and the best lack all conviction or whatever. When, when it comes to movie opinions, the people who you know have Marvel tattoos are going to are willing to drink your blood, Mister Scorsese, in defending these movies that are directed by committee with squishy CGI and bad performances. I just, I wouldn't bother. I know you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I might be overblowing it, but that moment uh, to me was like taking the temperature of sort of film going and viewership for this country. Like, I know that's a very, like, oh my God, this is such a moment. But to me, it really was sort of a moment where he said this because to everyone who sort of has a, a, a more sort of expanded view of film that doesn't just, you know, when, when the new superhero movie comes out, you go into theaters or, or something like that. It's a very sort of like mundane thing that he said, to be honest with you. Like, I don't think it's that interesting. It's only the reaction to that, to me, that is interesting, where people got so up in arms. Like, if, you know, if we're all talking and going, oh, Marvel movies aren't cinema, that's what Scorsese says. You're like, wow, awesome take. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's not, it's not that, it's not an interesting take, but like, how people reacted to it being like, what does he mean? They're not movies. It's like, wow, you really don't understand this very simple thing that he's saying. Like, he's not saying that they're not a part of the medium. Like I saw videos like that on the internet where people are like, how are Marvel movies, not movies? They're movies. Right. And he's, he's trying to be like, you know, all this work that we're doing with like the film foundation, that's like cinema with a capital C that he's trying to preserve. Like all of these overlooked, you know, sort of quote artsy films that are really trying for these, you know, grand, you know, themes and philosophy and these interesting like flourishes of technique. He's saying that more people should watch that kind of cinema. That it would be great if people would sort of step out of their comfort zones, but people just like totally misinterpreted what he was saying, which was hilarious to me. Yeah, I mean, my, my sense of what he said is that it boiled down to not my cup of tea, and I really don't like that we're getting to a point where this is the only sort of cinema, not even the only sort of cinema that people will consume, the only sort of cinema available to consume. Right. That's horrifying. Yeah. And like, I'm sorry, even if they're your favorite thing in the world, even if you can't imagine not waking up and watching a, a Marvel movie on Disney+, Plus, like, isn't the thought of nothing else apocalyptic to you? I don't know. I speaking of Joker, um, wh- one of the things that that coincided with Joker's release, of course, and I, I, I regret my own involvement in this sort of thing was the kind of moral panic about the violence it might inspire. I was reading Jay Hoberman uh, in in the New York Times talked about uh, a can screening for the King of Comedy in in 1983 that did not go over well, and apparently, the response at the time was, "What if someone kidnaps Johnny Carson after seeing this movie?" So these sort of hand-wringing, uh, moral panic, uh, depiction equals endorsement things have been uh, have been going on for at least uh, 40 years. 
and I and I could really get on my soapbox about this stuff, but this is the last thing I'll sort of sort of rant about it about is that like it's it's funny because I think a lot of the people that were uproared with what he's saying what what he's saying think that his films are like the greatest films ever made. You know, it's not like he was speak he's almost speaking to his own fans, which is crazy to me that like you know that it's almost a rebellion of the people that go to see his movies religiously and he's telling them hey don't just watch it, it, like to me it was almost like hey don't just watch these films that are that are so beloved by the mainstream which includes his films weirdly enough you know what i mean like that's that's a crazy part of his career that that uh, i think is really fascinating so i'm just gonna quickly play my hand in the debate and just say I didn't see Joker. Uh, Bennett, can you tell us why they drew so many comparisons to each other, though? Well, um, I think Phillips is an outspoken fan of Scorsese's. I think like a lot of filmmakers of his generation. And uh, the film takes a lot of kind of both narrative beats and stylistic um, ticks kind of directly from The King of Comedy. There are these sort of... um, flights of fancy that aren't really necessarily coded as such. Um, he's obviously obsessed with, uh, well, he at a certain point becomes obsessed with becoming a stand-up comedian and, and getting on a talk show. Uh, and their ultimate, though he doesn't kidnap Robert De Niro, he does end up killing Robert De Niro, which is sort of like, an, sorry, spoilers for Joker, everybody. Their their dynamic becomes somewhat similar to the, uh, the Rupert-Jerry uh, dynamic. So does, does Joker hold its weight in uh, the conversation with King of Comedy? Um, I mean, I guess if you, if like, I'd rather watch Joker than like if someone actually just tried to make like a remake of the King of Comedy called the King of Comedy, I guess like, but, uh, no, Joker doesn't really have any ideas of its own. It's a pretty stupid movie. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think the world is worse for it existing. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So why don't we wind down King of Comedy here? We got to talk about the ending because it is amazing um it's ambiguous in a way that's not just dumb i'll say because so many films try to be ambiguous without saying anything but this one leaves us in a place where it kind of hovers between a rupert daydream and just a twisted reality um we've seen similar endings in taxi driver and wolf of wall street scorsese kind of leaves it between those two approaches though i mean how successful do you feel this ending is I, I mean, I think it's kind of the perfect way to end this. I think it is pitched perfectly between fantasy and reality. And I think much like the ending of uh, Taxi Driver, it's much more like, I, I just think it's much more interesting if we take it as probably mostly reality. Because <laughs> um, it, it, it just speaks, it, it, that's that's such a grimmer view of uh, like the world and like the media landscape if uh if Rupert Pupkin gets out of jail and gets his own talk show and a best-selling book. I mean, I think the he he puts maybe a little bit finer a point on it probably being a fantasy than in Taxi Driver with the the guy repeating Rupert Pupkin everybody, Rupert Pupkin over and over again. That maybe tips the hand, but um I don't know. I just a perfect way to end the movie. Scorsese man knows how to end him. Yeah, I usually hate the um, is it a dream, is it not a dream endings of films or, or parts of films. But I thought this was a brilliant way to end this film um, because I think what would happen, I guess, in this narrative world is somewhere between, you know, him just going to jail and and, and uh, going back into anonymity 
and becoming this gigantic star. Like it speaks a lot to sort of the, the machinery of the media landscape, especially. And I think it's a, it's a really nice like shot sequence too. I really like how it's like edited and the pacing of it, and especially how he frames that last shot of Rupert standing there on the stage was a great way to sort of end things. I do think, yeah, in real life, it would probably be somewhere in between. Like he would get out of jail. He probably would get a book deal, but I thought he would get a, I thought he would get a, uh, like a prime time or late night talk show, but he would become probably some sort of pseudo celebrity. He would be on TV in some capacity, no doubt. I'm sure he'd be boxing Jake Paul. Oh exactly. my God. Yeah, like <laughs> All right. Well, oh, do you guys yeah. have any final thoughts on King of Comedy? Um, just, just, uh, check it out. Uh, you know, if you like Joker, I'm sorry for insulting your taste, but, uh, why not watch the, the better version? <laughs> Rob? I'd say this is, if I had to choose, this is my favorite Scorsese movie. Not, not to spoil the end of the split picks where we <laughs> pick which one we like more, but to be honest, I think this is like a really interesting sort of fascinating take on, on these themes. And I think he did a superb job with this film. Yeah. This is one I hadn't seen before and. I'll admit I wasn't the biggest Scorsese fan. I watched a lot of his movies this week to catch up, but this one is definitely sits at the top for me. All right, well, I think that wraps up our talk on The King of Comedy. But having said that, I think we are going to split this into the first split, split picks. So we will return with an episode on silence. Rob... You selected this film. Give us a tiny little taste of what people can look forward to in the upcoming episode. One of the most honest discussions of what it's like to be a Catholic in modern times, uh, I think, in in modern cinema. Boom. Well, there you have it. Um, Yeah, we will be back soon. Thank you for listening. I'm Craig Wright. With me this week, we have Bennett Glace. Thank you again. Yep, happy to be here. And Robert Delaney, thank you as well. No problem. So much fun doing these episodes. These are these are a good time. And Scorsese, long movies. Figured we might as well have long episodes. So <laughs> yeah. we'll see you soon, people. Rupert Pumpkin, ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for Rupert Pumpkin. Wonderful.